When I learned about the flats, uh, I thought it was the coolest thing. It's like, okay, let's go find the flats. Let's go find the flats. And uh, I kept on coming around, you know, Avenue A. It's like, okay, this doesn't look like it. Where would the flats be? I looked more into it and I found out that the flats is underneath I-27. In 1923, the city of Lubbock established an ordinance that confined African Americans to the eastern area of the city. Out of that confinement grew a tight-knit community of educators, innovators, and mentors. These are some of the stories from those who have helped their community blossom, even in the shadows of the past. You picture this area here, if you picture like a cattle drive in a western. Cosby Morton is a historian who grew up in East Lubbock. You've been chopping cotton all week. You come to town to enjoy yourself. The flats was what that was. We, in a, in a sense, were segregated. Because we couldn't do things, we learned to become independent. We learned to survive. We adapted. A lot of the blacks that came out here came here following cotton pools or chopping cotton from East Texas. In East Texas, you had problems with race, you had hard labor, you had all of that. Yeah. That's someone that's very dear to me. That's my grandmother, we call her Mamma, and that's her daughter who would be my aunt. Marianne Lawson is a lifelong Lubbock resident, a teacher and an activist. She's going through a small tin of old family photos that have been passed down to her from her family. Yeah. Would you like to hear how my family ended up here on my daddy's side? I told you about the mama's side. Yeah. They came for a cotton pick. Um, My daddy and mom would often talk about what happened in Paris, Texas back in like 1926. My uncle, he would be a griot in Africa, because he tells the stories, okay? He mentioned that my great uncle was a sharecropper, 1926. Went and talked with the owner of the property. He wanted to find out how soon was he into paying off what he owed. And he said, this is the time where I don't have to do this anymore. And the owner said, yes, you do. You owe me such and such. He said, I don't owe you that. Well, something happened. Pretty terrible happened. He shot the owner. The KKK found out about it. They tarred him and they felt him and they drug him through the streets. My grandmama and my granddaddy and the rest of the other kids had to leave Paris, Texas. The KKK followed them to the Dallas area. Someone there protected them. And I'm thankful of that. And helped them leave out of Dallas to come to Lubbock. My daddy was four years old. Yeah. In 19, are you familiar with the 1923 ordinance? I lived 
in the flats. I was born in the flats on Avenue B, what they call 16th and Avenue B. Um, that's the reason why we didn't move. It's because of that ordinance. We certainly weren't going to move west. The ordinance she's referring to is the one that confined African-Americans to the eastern part of town. The Flats, where Marianne was born, is the area Cosby Morton described earlier. In a book titled Remember When? A History of African-Americans in Lubbock, Texas. It's described in an excerpt that reads, one of the earliest community groups of homes was called the Flats. This settlement was noted for many things, churches, businesses, homes, and various nefarious activities. According to one early resident, everything flourished on an equal basis. We lived there, and we lived in that three-room house. And we were proud to have that house. Daddy bought it. You want to hear something else? Mom said, if you weren't married in Lubbock, she would have been in the servants' quarters. I said, Mama, what's the servants' quarters? She says, it's a place where you, you go and you live with a white person. So she saw that as being better than living where she was living and putting up with what she was putting up with. And she would say that, I'd like to live in the servants' quarters. A lot of our parents, especially the women, worked for the other community. The houses out that you see in the tech, in the tech terrace area, south of campus, you notice they all have garage apartments. Those were servants' quarters. Domestics lived out there. And they were, you know, you'd see in the neighborhood white kids because their parents, they had the housekeeper's family, should bring them home on the weekend sometime. And they would interact with us. We didn't think anything about it. And they played with us. Now, that's the only place that I would have interaction with them. When I was growing up, like I had mentioned earlier, we lived in the flats. It was a thriving uh, neighborhood once upon a time. You know, you ain't talk about the village, educating the child, it was the village. The neighbors across the street, they were very encouraging. I had teachers who believed in me. And I knew what teachers really liked me. I once had a little torn dress, it was, and I can remember uh, Miss Scott, that was her name, Miss Luella Scott, she's a third grade teacher. And she said, it's okay if sometime, you know, your clothes are on the best. And that was, I think, to keep the kids from bullying me, because no child ever bullied me when I was around. They didn't. And I said, why'd she say that? Because she was speaking positively about me. She was doing that. And she believed in me. And I knew she loved me. And Mr. Taylor, um, he was another one, and he became a principal, and he was the one that saw me as being a good student. And he spoke of that, because I didn't realize I was really a good student until eh, high school, I guess. And Marianne was a good student. After graduating from high school, she went to Langston University in Oklahoma and eventually became an educator. When she moved back to Lubbock, she had changed, and circumstances had started to change. The city started to open up for African-Americans. Remember I told you my mom was a cook and an excellent cook mm -hmm. for Lubbock's cafeteria. Uh, I had come back home from, from teaching. And that was in like 1969. 
and we went to Coney Island. And uh, Mama said, let's go get us something to eat. Let's get us a burger. And uh, she said, it's right over here, Mary. I got ready to go in the front door. And she said, no, we're going to go to the back. I said, Mama, the laws have changed. We can go to the front. She said, that's what they say. And we could go to the front. It had changed. But that was sad. My mom was so used to doing that, she didn't know any better. Time had changed the circumstances, slowly, and more change was needed. Over a decade later, opportunity presented itself for a Black person to finally serve in city leadership. That person was T.J. Patterson. His daughter is Sheila Patterson Harris. She's a current city council member. Her family roots extend back into the Flats area as well. Here she is talking about her mother's grandmother, Good Mama. If you allow me, my, my great-grandmother, her name was Sarah Crawford, we called her Good Mama. She lived at 1803 Avenue B, which is in the flat area. Uh, but that's where it started. She was blind uh, all of my life. She was my mom's grandmother, and, she, and my mom was the only grandchild that she ever saw with her own eyes because she lost her sight. Uh, after an incident, I'll say, I think someone came into the store where she and her husband owned and and shot and she ended up with the buckshots in her eyes. So she lost her, her eyes and her, and her sight. And she disciplined us. Her hearing was keen. She loved the, the stories of the, uh, uh, what do they call them now? Soap operas, but she'd say stories. Love the stories and she'd hear them and she could tell you everything. She'd tell you the character. She could tell you everything that was going on. She could count her money. Her, her dollar bills were folded a certain way, but she could feel the rims of the, of the quarter and the size of it, the dimes and the nickel, all of that. So she knew uh, the, the, Mr. Harold had a store just to the north of where she lived. And uh, that building is still there. And she said, okay, take this dollar and go tell Mr. Harold I need whatever. And she knew what it cost. And she knew what she had given you, so you'd better bring the change back. But she raised our, uh, my mom and my aunt and uh, and my grandmother, but she, she did, and she lived for a long time, and she, uh, she's the matriarch of our family. Anything you needed or uh, uh, weren't quite sure of, call good mama, so she could, she could talk to you about it and, and kind of lend her ear to the situation. And, you know, just having that. On the other side of her family tree sits her father, T.J. Patterson. He served as the first Black city council member in Lubbock. But before we get into his story, Let's unpack the court case that paved the way to him winning a seat at the table. Here's historian Chuck Lanehart during an episode of Listen in Lubbock. The first city charter uh, that is relevant to this discussion was 1917. And the 1917 city charter called for a city council of four persons elected at large, which meant the whole city uh, voted on uh, five people. And uh, those five people were always uh, white folks, white men, uh, because of the nature of the population. Our population was very high percentage of whites and very few uh, black folks. 
So fast forward to the mid-1970s. The very first black lawyer in Lubbock, Gene Gaines, his wife died in the mid-70s. He was told that if he wanted to bury his wife in the city of Lubbock Cemetery, that she would be buried in the segregated black section of the cemetery. The cemetery was divided into two sections, one for blacks and Hispanics and one for whites. And the city of Lubbock Cemetery was the responsibility of the Lubbock City Council. So Gene decided, well, I can, uh, I can fix this. I can run for city council and try to fix it that way, or I can sue in federal court for uh, a new way to elect the city council in single-member districts. And that's exactly what he did. In 1976, Gene Gaines filed a federal civil rights lawsuit in United States District Court, Judge Halbert Woodward presiding in Lubbock. And that was what got things started. Just to clarify, up until this point, no person of color had ever served on the city council or as mayor of Lubbock, correct? That is correct. So what happened next in this lawsuit? Gene was not very experienced uh, in federal court, nor was he experienced with civil rights litigation, which is a specialized area, pretty complicated. When the litigation started, Judge Woodward recognized the importance of this litigation. However, he did not think that Gene Gaines had the ability to successfully uh, prosecute his lawsuit. So uh, Judge Woodward called a Texas Tech School of Law professor named Dan Benson. Dan was one of the very few uh, people in Lubbock who was experienced in civil rights litigation. And he uh, recruited uh, half a dozen young lawyers who he had taught in law school to assist. They went to bat for the plaintiffs, and uh, there was a big trial in uh, 1978. Uh, The plaintiffs outlined a history of discrimination against blacks and Hispanics in Lubbock, including the history of the Ku Klux Klan in Lubbock, and the fact that no one other than white folks had ever served on the city council or become a mayor, and that it was impossible uh, under the current system of at-large voting to ever elect a minority to any of those positions, and they lost. The plaintiffs decided to appeal that case to the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals in New Orleans. The Fifth Circuit was obliged to reverse Judge Woodward's denial of relief, and the case was uh, scheduled for a retrial in the early 1980s. Now tell me, what was the outcome of the the second trial? The plaintiffs won, Mm -hmm. and the judge, Judge Woodward, he ordered a new plan for election of city council members. Uh, six, I believe it was, it's six uh, uh, commissioners uh, from six different districts in the city. You have to live in your district to run for city commissioner. Uh, and then a mayor who is elected at large. And finally, how soon after this change did Lubbock see its first black and Hispanic representative? Almost immediately. It was, uh, it was 1984 was was the decision, and 1984 was the first election. So I don't know the exact dates, but uh, uh, T.J. Patterson and Maggie Trejo were elected almost immediately after the decision. Well, my dad was and still is just my dad. All of the things that, that you hear him say out in public or have heard him say out in public, he said those things at 2405. 
So uh, those things happened long before he became the council person and all of that. I like to say that he was a community activist, uh, but just a caring guy. Uh, he'll tell the story of coming to Lubbock. Uh, he graduated from Bishop College when it was in Wiley, Texas. And uh, he came uh, to Lubbock because his aunt uh, Lucille Graves, Aunt Sugar is what we call her, uh, who happens to be the first African-American person to enroll in 10 Texas Tech. Just throw that in there. My uh, grandmother, my dad's mom, was a baby of 18 children. Can you imagine the age gap <laughs> from the first two to the, to the baby? Uh, Aunt Sugar was the number 17. And my Aunt April was number 16. And they were the ones that lived here in, in Lubbock. But uh, he came here to pick up a car that she had promised him. And he came, and prior to coming, he saw my mom's picture in a newspaper article. And he was like, oh, I've got to meet that young lady. And so he came here, picked up the car, began working at Mary and Mac. And my uncle, who's my mom's baby brother, was attending Mary Mac. And my dad tells a story that he used to pinch him on the cheek and go, go tell your sister that I pinched you on your cheek and all that. And he sent notes. So he came here, met my mom, and, and the rest is history. So in 1983, when the idea came that, hey, there was enough of this, and so the lawsuit was filed to create single-member districts that exist today, where people in a specific area or community can elect members of their peers to represent them. And so thus we have districts one through six. So he was the first one elected in for district number two. That didn't happen until after I had gone through high school and I was in college. My dad ran actually when I was I think my sophomore year in college was when he ran for uh, city council. But those things that he was doing, you looking out for whomever, he has always been concerned about children or about the chillin', as he says it. And my, and my mom was no different. She just was not in, in the political realm. Oh, my mom did not, did not like politics. Oh, my goodness. But she was an educator, and she worked in uh, Lubbock LISD for about 30-something years. Sheila, with dreams of becoming a television reporter, never thought she would follow in her father's footsteps. Good morning, everybody. Let's try that again. I said good morning, everybody. On a hot Monday morning, Sheila addresses a crowd for the opening of the Lubbock Police Department's East Patrol Division Station. It's situated overlooking the historic Dunbar Lake. Among the crowd of smiling faces are a few of the trailblazers, like Ms. Vernita Holmes, Rose Wilson, and Marianne Lawson, to name a few. You know, in just over a month, I'll add another year to my life. And I hear you you're saying, well, well, Sheila, what the heck does that have to do? would open up a patrol division. I'll tell you, I'm glad you asked. <laughs> it means that I'll add one more year to my life here in the great city of Lubbock, Texas. It means that there's one more year that I'll add to my life as I live over on the hill. It means that it's one more year that I'm a resident of the great district number two. So it's important to me because it causes me to reflect because this lake, I remember, hasn't always been a lake. I don't know if those of you who remember that that just used to be a canyon. And what it does is it shows us what possibility is and what beauty can be. I've been approached before, but hey, you need to, and I'm like, eh, no. I saw my dad with all that foolishness. I will not. 
And uh, after a lot of praying and discussions with my family, decided that, oh, what the heck, let's, let's run, let's run. And so we ran and we won, <laughs> you know, and it's like, okay, now what? Because that's how we make things happen. The now what has been Sheila's commitment to pushing her community forward. I'm excited, if you can't tell. I'm excited because this moves us forward. I envision so many more folks coming to this space. So many more things coming to this space because we've developed a partnership in this area of the city. And we're gonna show everybody else how it gets done. I always end my speeches with one saying that my dad always reminds me of. He says, and say it with me if you know it, little threads of cotton make mighty big rope. And what that means is that there's something for every last one of us to do. And if we do it together, doggone it, we'll make great things happen. So I say to you, thank you for being here. Let's get this party started. While she looks ahead, there are still some elements of the past that she wants to see preserved in the area where she grew up. Because some changes haven't been for the best. Actually before uh, integration as a whole, the black community had to count on the black community. The dollar bill turned over in, the, in its own community six, seven times because in that community you had a movie theater, you had a, a couple grocery stores, you had hotels. King's Hotel was right off of, off of uh, Fur Avenue behind Bethel. I mean, you had uh, Neal's that had barbecue and, and the way that they survived is that the people in the community supported them. And I think that's the attitude that uh, we get back because we stopped it in our, in our own community. We stopped supporting that and began taking our dollar bill to other communities and it stopped turning over. I've, I've lived in Chapman Hill. I'm just under 60. And outside of the time that I went off to college, I lived there. And I, and, and, and I tell people, I live there not because I can't afford to live someplace else. I live there, man, because I think it's one of the greatest places in this city. I tell you what, it doesn't flood over there. Yeah, it's a zucchini plant. It has male and female flowers on it. At the center of the neighborhood Sheila grew up in, Kenneth Castillo cares for the small community garden a place he uses as a teaching tool for young men growing up in East Lubbock. History is tangible in this section of the city, except for one part. When I learned about the flats, uh, I thought it was the coolest thing. It's like, okay, let's go find the flats. Let's go find the flats. And uh, I kept on coming around, you know, Avenue A, I was like, okay, this doesn't look like it. Where would the flats be? I looked more into it and I found out that the flats is underneath I-27. It seemed like it was a very vibrant and active community. I wish I would have, uh, could have been able to see it. There were bars, barbecue joints, I mean, golly, everything that you can imagine any community would have. And they were all homegrown businesses, uh, homegrown African-American businesses. I mean, that's just really cool. Um, so that, that, that's the flats. Check out the full series of Beyond the Report, A Plan for Progress. Go to beyondthereportlbk.com. 
Be on the Report is brought to you in part by Texas Tech Physicians Obstetrics and Gynecology. 